0: Well, I'll open us up with prayer, let's just bow our heads. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in freedom and learn more about who you are. I do uh, pray this morning for Bob and his voice that it would heal up. We pray that, Lord, you would uh, bring him back to us to be able to teach. And we pray for healing upon him. And also Nancy Moen, as she continues to heal up from her hip. And I also pray for Julie Redmond as she continues to grieve and mourn for her the loss of her dad. And Lord, we, uh, we know that we have trials and tribulations in this life, but help us to think about the promises to come and the resurrection. So today, help us to think well upon your biblical text and to learn about how the prophets spoke of you to come. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to interpret prophecy well. So help us to think well this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that aren't aware, typically Bob is going to be doing his Sunday school today. Um, He called me and uh, could barely speak a few days ago. And so his voice is out of action, but we'll, by God's grace, get him back soon. So I will be uh, doing a Sunday school today. And what I did is I really dug into the goodie bag. I took a message that I did. uh, Yeah, the goodie bag is always good. Four years ago, I did a message on hermeneutics. How to properly understand and interpret the scriptures. The term hermeneutics properly defined is the art and science of biblical interpretation. That's what it's about. Now, let me explain why I want to talk about prophecy. Some years ago, I became concerned about the abuse of the Old Testament. And it culminated in a book called The Harbinger, which really abused Old Testament prophecy And so I really started to think about the interpretation for the regular average Christian. And here's what I would say. If you want to understand the scriptures well, I think there's two categories that the Christians have to improve in in America. Number one is the understanding of the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, we've hit that topic before, but that's an important one for Christians to understand. Number two is how the New Testament writers understood Old Testament prophecy. And I think that this is something that's lacking in the church today. So, my prayer is that this message will help people understand how the New Testament writers understood Old Testament prophecy and exactly the nature and some of the forms of Old Testament prophecy. So, with that, let me just turn and begin by talking about. Oh, thank you. This is my little guy, Will. (laughs) Thank you, Will. I want to begin. Oops, for some reason my computer isn't working here. There we are. I'm just going to ask the question, what is prophecy? And I want you to think about where it comes from originally. The term in Hebrew for prophet is navi. And it literally means to bubble forth here like a fountain. And so the idea that the Hebrews had was that God was the source of every word for the prophet. And he would merely speak forth the very words of God. Now, how many in here have ever heard of the Tanakh? Tanakh is, um, I know obviously Bob has, many of you in, you in here have. Tanakh is T N K, and then the Hebrews put in uh, vowels around that, and it reminds us of what the whole Old Testament is. The T stands for Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. That would be our Pentateuch. The, the Torah is instruction, okay, the law. Now, the N comes from Nava'im, which is the plural prophets. Anytime you hear a im ending, it's the plural form on masculine nouns. And so the Nava'im are the prophets. So you have the Law of the Prophets, and then the K would be the Kathavim, which is the writings. So the Law of the Prophets and the writings are the entirety of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And so that's our Hebrew Bible. And this would have been the division that I think even Jesus would have understood, as you can see in Luke 24. So the prophets spoke from God, and that's what they did. They were the ones who were God's very spokesman and mouthpiece. And I want you to think of prophecy is really in two basic categories. First of all, the prophet might speak something called forth-telling. Now, what is a forth-telling prophecy? Well, there are announcements by the prophets that God's people had strayed, from the covenant and would receive judgment unless they repented. So a forth telling prophecy is a message from the prophet that calls the people of God to change their ways and come back to faith in Yahweh, forsake idolatry, forsake their arrogance, their trusting in man, etc. So the majority of prophecy in the Old Testament is really forth-telling. Now, saying that, that doesn't mean that there is not this second element. There certainly is. And this is what is unique about the Bible. The Bible contains foretelling prophecies. And those are predictions of the future made by the prophets concerning future judgments, future salvation, and messianic doctrine. Now, later on in this message, I'm going to show you something I think that's profound. It was to me. And the profundity is that Old Testament foretelling in the prophets is more than just haphazard predictions where we have the conception, I think, as Christians, that when the prophets wrote, they were writing better than they knew. In other words, they would be writing and they really didn't know what they were talking about. I'll be showing you that, yes, there's certainly a future predictive element, but the Old Testament prophets were actually teaching messianic doctrine. Messianic doctrine that we see unfold from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so what I'm claiming is that the foretelling and predictive prophecies are even greater than we know. All right, now, what I want to do next is I want to show you some typical literary forms that you will see in Old Testament prophecy. And you might want to jot these down. There's three basic forms that you will see in Old Testament prophecy. And these three basic forms will contain both the foretelling, telling the people to repent, and foretelling, giving predictions of the future, and teaching messianic doctrine. They contain both. Now, the first type of oracle that you'll often see in the Old Testament prophets is called the lawsuit oracle. And this is where God brings a charge against his people for them breaking covenant. The second type of oracle, so the first is the lawsuit oracle, the second is the woe oracle. And it's very similar, however, here in the woe oracle you're seeing more of the doom and the judgment. The third type of oracle that you'll often see is what I would call the promise oracle. And the promise oracle is where God looks forward to the day that in Messiah, he will restore all of the promises that he had given to David, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, etc. Okay? So, with that, let me just start with the lawsuit oracle. Again, here in the lawsuit oracle, God metaphorically sues Israel for breaking the covenant. Now, what you're going to find is when you see a lawsuit oracle, you're going to see four elements to it. And so my prayer is that you'll start seeing this when you're reading the Old Testament scripture. These things will actually pop out at you. Okay, the first part of a lawsuit oracle is the summons. In fact, in Isaiah 1, God gives a summons where he summons the entire earth and universe as witnesses, metaphorically, against Israel for breaking the covenant. Okay, so there's a summons, just like you would see in a human courtroom. And then you have the charge. In other words, Yahweh launches a charge against Israel. They've broken covenant. They went after false gods. They trust in man rather than Yahweh for salvation. Okay, and he'll make the charge. Perhaps sometimes it's they're mistreating the poor. And we'll look at that. That's a sign of them breaking the covenant. Now, he'll cite evidence. He'll actually cite things that they're doing wrong so the people aren't left hanging as to what God is angry about. And then finally, he gives the verdict. The verdict is they're guilty, and unless they repent, judgment comes. That's the idea. Now, let me give you an example of this from Isaiah 3, 13 through 16. Now, remember, what is the primary problem in Isaiah's day? Well, the people of Israel, instead of trusting in Yahweh... For salvation, they started trusting in man. In fact, if you jot this passage down, jot Isaiah 2.22. And that's kind of a key to Isaiah because there it shows that the people of Judah were trusting in man rather than Yahweh. So think of it this way. God had spared them and saved the people as a nation, but all of a sudden when they were threatened by neighbors, instead of trusting in Yahweh, the people said, yeah, we began with Yahweh, but we're going to go on to make alliances with our pagan neighbors. For instance, we'll make a, a pact with Assyria. And lo and behold, they start taking on some of the pagan and false gods. Now, that's very similar to what Bob is teaching in Colossians. Yes, the Colossian Christians started with Christ, but Christ, they thought, were, he wasn't really sufficient to protect them from bad fate. And so you see, there's different heresy, but it's really the same. It's always recycled. What leads people astray into sin is lack of faith in Yahweh. So here in Isaiah chapter 3, God is going to give a lawsuit oracle to remedy it. So he begins with the summons. So just like we would have in a courtroom proceeding, here's the summons to bring Israel to court, as it were. I'll read this in a second. Notice it begins, Isaiah three, 3 thirteen through 14. The Lord arises to contend and stands to Judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. So notice the summons is against the Lord's people, but it's also against the elders and the princes. So here you see a relationship that God is angry not just with the people, but also the leaders. And it's not just the leaders he's angry with, but also the people. They stand in what you and I would call corporate solidarity. So, in other words, if you don't like the government that we have in America, realize that we're responsible for it. Why? Because our people voted it in. The people tolerate the government that we have. Now, I'm not saying you personally, but there's this idea that Americans kind of get what they deserve, don't they? Right? And the same thing is true in Israel. The people are responsible for their leadership, but the leadership is ultimately responsible also for the people. And so God launches his summons and then also his charge particularly here against the leadership. But I want you to understand is the launch of the charge against the leadership is also an indictment against the people. That's my point. So here's the charge, Isaiah 3, 14 through 15. God says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. Okay, so here, the the indictment... Oops, I didn't bring my mouse here. I guess I can hopefully point to this. Notice the circle The elders and princes are the ones who have devoured the vineyard. Okay, so God is like this magnificent vineyard planter, a vine dresser, I guess would be the technical term. And he gives the vineyard, Israel, over to underlings, and they mistreat it. And so elsewhere in Isaiah, the later chapters, and also in Jeremiah, you see these leaders are called bad shepherds. And so, there's these bad shepherds who should be taking care of the flock of Israel, leading them to Yahweh, the path of salvation. But instead, these false leaders lead the people of Israel into the idols and the false gods of the nations. Now, the reason I mention that in particular is this sets us up for longing for the good shepherd. The good shepherd is whom? It's Jesus. And so that's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. So all through the prophets, there's this longing for good leadership and it will one day culminate in the millennial kingdom where the good shepherd reigns over Israel and he leads the people of God in paths of righteousness. Okay, so that's what it all expects. But nonetheless, there's a real indictment. There's a charge against these leaders. Now the next part of the lawsuit oracle is the evidence. What evidence is there that Israel is breaking the covenant? And particularly, again remember the Mosaic covenant. Well, we see this in Isaiah 3:14c through 16. The Lord says, "The plunder of the poor is in your houses." Now, let me just stop there for a moment. What would be the problem with plundering the poor? Well, that's a sign of breaking covenant because in the Mosaic Covenant, over and over, God says that the people of Israel have to be concerned with their treatment for the poor. For example, in Exodus 22:25, 25 in the covenant community of Israel, if you sold something to a poor man or you lent money to him, you were not to charge him interest. What happened in Isaiah's day is that interest was being charged and the rich knew that the poor couldn't pay it. And so what they would use that for is a means to take away their land. You see, in Israel, remember in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, the year is supposed to be about returning everything to its original owner. Well, the Israelites started not obeying that. Okay, think about this, Deuteronomy fifteen seven, The Lord says, If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which Yahweh your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart, nor close close your hand from your poor brother. Now, the fact that the Israelites are breaking that is evidence that they don't believe in Yahweh. So, here we see there's always a relationship between the lack of obedience and lack of faith. Because they no longer trust in Yahweh, why would they be concerned for keeping the covenant? What they start doing is they start living for the things of this world. After all, who can really trust that this Yahweh exists? Who really knows if he's the only true God? And so they start breaking covenant. All right. So he's indicting them for that. And notice he goes on to say, What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. The daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high. And seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. What's interesting in Hebrew, there's kind of a rhythm to those words, and it almost makes you feel like you're dancing, or you know, I'm not that good at Hebrew, nor am I that good at dancing, so it doesn't make me quite feel like that. But I think to a natural speaker, you would feel that way. And so the idea is there's this haughtiness even to the women. Why? They're arrogant. The men are arrogant, they steal from the poor. The women are arrogant, and they seduce men. They have thoroughly gone away from the covenant of Yahweh. Now, here's the verdict, Isaiah 3, 25 through 26. So now God is giving what's going to happen. He says, now, first of all, the men. He says, your men will fall by the sword, and your mighty ones in battle. Now, the women and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. Now, notice here this, what I have highlighted in red, where it says her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. This is a reference, notice it's a female that's being talked about, the daughter of Zion. So the daughter of Zion is a representative of the Israelis in general. And it's linking back up, if you can look in the screen there, on the underline, to these women who had proud and seductive eyes. And so God is saying, no longer will they be proud like that, but instead they're going to be brought low. They're going to be brought low because they didn't trust in Yahweh, okay? Now, when does that happen? In history, of course, it happens in the 722 destruction of Samaria, the northern kingdom. But remember, Assyria comes and also sacks Jerusalem in 701. Now, I shouldn't say it completely sacks it. It puts an invasion force around it, but God supernaturally intervenes. But nonetheless, uh, Judean towns like Lachish and many other towns felt exactly what God was saying here. And then finally, it culminates in the 586 destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, okay? So again, a lawsuit oracle, oracle has a summons, it has a charge, it has the evidence, and then the verdict. And you're going to see that over and over. In fact, I listed a bunch of passages in the Old Testament. Now, this is from, uh, granted, four years ago. And at the time, these are the passages that I found. There's probably more, but I had to stop my studies at some point and get ready for the week, I think. So these are the passages that I found that would have a lawsuit oracle. Now, sometimes there'll be a summons missing. He'll just go right to the uh, charge. Sometimes there's a charge missing, but a lot of times you'll see all four of those elements now the next form that i want to talk about is the woe oracle now the woe oracle expresses imminent doom because of sinfulness without repentance now the key there is without repentance if the people of god sin and they repent they'll come to yahweh he'll he'll forgive them but the problem is they're so often living in unrepentant sin so now there's three parts to this first of all you'll see an announcement of distress There's distress because of the sin of the people. There's a reason for the distress. And then finally, you'll be given the prediction of doom. Okay? Now, let me give you a concrete example again out of Micah chapter 2. Now, remember, Micah, he was living in the 8th century, and he was prophesying primarily to the people of Judah. I like Micah, and here's why. I think he lived in a very similar situation that you and I do today. I think of Micah as living in the time period, if you're an American, after Ronald Reagan. You see, there was a great king in Judah named Uzziah. And right after he dies, he was like a Ronald Reagan. They had robust military. Nobody could take the people of Judah. They were wealthy. They were doing very well. He was an honorable man. So when he dies, you think of Judah as kind of basking in the afterglow of the light of Uzziah. And I think the same thing is true, in a sense, in America. I'm not claiming that Ronald Reagan is some gifted theologian, but I think he was a good president. At the time, we had a 600-ship navy. We had a 15-aircraft 15, uh, 15 carrier fleet. We, uh, the, the Pacific Ocean was called the American Lake by the Chinese. I mean, it was devastating. If the Russians would have tried anything in 1989, it wouldn't have gone well for them. Okay, And you see this in the first Gulf War. Remember in World War II... The Germans shoot our tank, their shell goes right through the front and back of a Sherman tank. Our Sherman tank shoots the front of a Panther, it bounces off. In 1990, 1991, the American M1 tank that Reagan built, that military, it shoots right through the front armor of the, the Babylonian T-72, the Russian T-72 that the Iraqis had. Their shells just bounce right off. It was devastating. America right now, I think, is kind of in a sense basking in the glow of that military. Again, biblically speaking, the role of government is to restrain evil. When a government starts to become Marxist, that changes where people think that the role of government is to redistribute wealth. Remember Romans 13, 4, the government does not bear the sword in vain. That's their primary role. Here's the point is, Micah was in the same situation. It was the afterglow. Judah was in the descent. And so the people were caught up in this materialism as a result of the great wealth that they had. And so Micah comes on the scene, and he has to call the people to repentance. And so first of all, you'll see the announcement of distress. Micah 2:1, it says, "Woe," the Lord says, to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds." Now let's stop there. What's interesting in Scripture is the bed is the place of contemplation. You and I, we may succumb at times to temptation, and we do. Remember first, John, if we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves. the truth isn't in us. But what's interesting is the Scripture makes a distinction oftentimes between deliberate sin that is planned and that that people fall into. What the Lord's point is is here is they're in the bed scheming these things. In other words, they're so evil and wicked, they lay in bed and in those moments of silence, they plot how wicked they're going to be for the day. That's how bad off they are. That's how far they have left from the Lord. They're actually scheming how they'll break covenant lying in the silence of their bed in the morning. That's what Yahweh is saying here. And he says, when morning comes, they do it. Now they carry it out for it is in the power of their hands. And so materialism ends up gripping the people and they end up taking away from the poor, breaking covenant. Reason for the distress. Verse 2, they covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. So again, the year of Jubilee, according to Leviticus 25, was the year on the 50th year that people were to return land to its original owner. They didn't care about that. They kept it. They weren't going to leave the land to the poor as God had commanded them, return it back to its original owner because they'd become materialistic. Now, we see not only the reason for distress, but also the announcement here, a prediction of doom. And that's in verses 3 through 5. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm planning against this family. And broadly speaking, that's the whole family of Judah or Israel. It's not just a local family. He says he's going to plan for them a calamity. And he goes on to say, and you will not walk haughtily, that is an arrogance, a sign that they're trusting themselves rather than God, for it will be an evil time. On that day, and then he goes on to talk about judgment. Now, let's talk about that on that day. Remember, when we look at that day, it's a day of the Lord, a day of God's judgment. And when it comes to God's judgment of wrath, there's both a near-term fulfillment, and then there's a far-term. And so in the near-term, for example, you'll have the wrath of God from the Assyrians and the Babylonians come upon Israel, but that's always a foreshadowing or a down payment of the future day of the Lord. That's still in our future. So when God talks about the future judgments in the Old Testament, he'll always give a near-term example. And sometimes that example might be judgment upon the Babylonians or Israel or Assyria, what have you. Okay? But that's the day of the Lord when it says that day. So there's the prediction of doom. And that will ultimately culminate when Judah succumbs to the Babylonian captivity. All because they wouldn't repent and turn back to faith in Yahweh. Okay, now, let's talk about then the next form, which is my favorite. It's the promise oracle. Enough of the gloom and doom, right? We want promises here. The promise oracle provides assurance of future blessing associated with really reestablishing the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. Okay, now, there's three forms that you'll see, or three parts to this. There's a reference to the future, It'll typically say in that day. Now, notice in Micah, we just saw that phrase, okay? So in Micah, he was talking about in that day in the near term. But many times when you're looking at a promise oracle, in that day focuses on the far term day of the Lord, which is still in our future. Does that make sense? So I think that helps us understand and interpret in that day. We have to wrestle, is that in the near term, in the prophet's day, or is that in the far term which is still in our future. Yeah. Yeah, the near term, would that be to authenticate the um, prophet, that they are true prophet of God? Well said, Milford. It it often was. um, Milford asked the question, was it often used the near term fulfillment to show that the prophet of God was a true prophet? And exactly right. Because in Deuteronomy 18, one of the tests of a true prophet was if they said something, it had to come true. If it didn't come true, they weren't a true prophet. So exactly right. So Isaiah would use the near-term or Micah, the near-term fulfillment to verify that they were in fact a spokesman for God. So yeah, thank you. Very good point to bring up. Yes, excellent. So yeah, there would be a reference to the future. The second part, would there would be a radical change that would one day be brought forth by God's mercy as he would reestablish the Davidic Covenant. And those are the promised blessings. The Davidic Covenant would be reestablished. The house of David would be rebuilt. The house of David that was torn down because of wicked kings like Zedekiah and Ahaz who turned away from the Lord. Okay, now, let's turn to Amos. Amos is a good example of this 8th century prophet. Amos, remember, talks many, many, many times about the day of the Lord. And the Israelites thought that the day of the Lord was going to be great with them, regardless if they trusted in Yahweh. In fact, listen to this, Amos 5.18. God says to the Israelites, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. You see, they thought they were in because of their genetic background. God is saying, wait a minute. You don't trust me. You don't obey me. And yet you think the near-term day of the Lord is going to go well with you? And so he has to disavow them of that. But yet, throughout Amos, you see all these bad things? Well, finally, when you get to Amos 9, there's good news. That despite the wickedness of Israel, God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. And so that's what we see. So let's begin with the reference to the future. Amos 9, 11, and then also in verse 13. Notice the future-oriented language in that day. Now, again, that's a future-oriented language day of the Lord, all right? And then he says, behold, days are coming. So that reinforces the idea that this is still in the future. Then context shows us that it has to do with the millennial kingdom. Now, the next part is the radical change in promised blessings. Verses 11 through 12, he says, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Okay, now notice here the reference to the fallen booth of David. What's interesting is when David's family is being obedient and they're prospering in the land because they're, they're believing in Yahweh and they're obedient, then it's referred to as the house of David. But when they engage in sin, it becomes merely a pathetic little booth of David. Sukkah, literally a tent. It's a pathetic little tent of David because it's dilapidated because of their sin and their disobedience. But here, the great promise is that, notice, God will one day raise it up. Raise up this dilapidated, pathetic tent of David that has been decimated because of sin. Now, the term raise up there is kum, In Hebrew, it's the imperfect form, looking towards the future. And that very term, raise up, was used in one of the most important passages that Bob often cites, Deuteronomy 18.15. Now, what was promised in Deuteronomy 18.15? Well, remember, that's where Moses says that God would one day raise up for the people of Israel a prophet like Moses. So here, God is going to raise up another promise, the house of David, all right? Now, what's interesting is when you look at the grammar of this passage, notice where it says, I will also raise up its ruins. I would prefer instead of its ruins, his ruins. Again, that would be his ruins. And the reason I say that is because its ruins is really a third-person masculine singular suffix. So let me just point this out. So God will raise up this fallen, dilapidated tent of David, And he will wall up its breaches. The breaches there are actually between, when you look at context, it's the breach between Israel and Judah. But he will also raise up not its ruins, but David's ruins. It's a third person masculine singular. It should be his ruins. So God is going to raise up his ruins. Now, why is that important? Because it brings us back to 2 Samuel 7. Didn't God promise that David would have a house that would live forever? A grand dynasty that would live forever? A seed that would live forever in reign. Certainly he did. And so you see then Amos is building not just some haphazard predictive prophecy. Oh yes, it's predictive, that's for sure. But it's more grand than that because Amos is teaching us messianic doctrine. The Messiah was going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, Judah, 2 Samuel 7, David. And there was three things that were true of David's promise. The seed from David would have a kingdom. There would be a seed, namely the Messiah. And he would have a dynasty that would be without end. So certainly Amos is speaking for the Lord, giving that prediction. But he's also teaching this messianic doctrine based on past promises, like in 2 Samuel 7. That's how Old Testament predictive prophecy works. It builds off of the past promises as it gives future promises. Okay. Now, notice in the blue, very important, it says that they will possess the remnant of Edom. Now, this goes back, that same terminology, back to that Balaamic prophecy in Numbers 24. Remember here, you have Balaam, this pagan prophet, who prophesies that one day Edom will be a possession of Israel. Numbers 24, 17 through 18, it says, A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. Okay. Now, in the context back then, remember, God was angry with Edom because they wouldn't allow the Israelites to go through the land of Edom. Now, remember, the Edomites are related to Israel. They come from Esau, the brother of Jacob. And so here they're being really nasty to Israel, and God won't tolerate it. In fact, the whole book of Obadiah is about God's judgment upon the Edomites. In 553 BC, 553 BC, God ends up destroying them by the Babylonians. But what I want you to see here in the context of Amos is this is actually good news. Notice he says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So it's not just Edom, but the remnant. And so what God is saying is that there's going to be a remnant that's not going to be judged. And these are people who are believers in the pinnacle of the pagan nations. In fact, notice he says, and all the nations are also going to be possessed who are what? Called by my name. So these are believers. And so notice the great promise of the restoration of the booth of David incorporates not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Wow. What a great promise. You and I are included in that. And we will one day reign in that glorious kingdom when Christ sets up the booth and house of David. Okay, so again, this is a good example of how I think the Israelites used prophecy. Okay, now you can use your handout. Again, put it in your Bible and just go through some of those other passages that I had listed and you'll find those forms. But I want to move on now for the sake of time. And I want to talk about Another very important issue when we're dealing with Old Testament prophecy. And that is the question, how did the New Testament writers use it? Okay, and I'm going to give you four different possibilities. Now, I'm going to show you one that comes from liberal theologians. And the first proposal would be what's called single meaning. And what that would mean is that the New Testament writers just used messianic prophecy out of context. Messianic prophecy, this claim, is merely a dogmatic assertion. In other words, the claim by these theological liberals, like this German theologian J.G. Eichhorn, I hate to say this, but usually when there's a German theologian involved, you just go right, and I, now there's good ones, don't let me say that on the tape, but oftentimes if you see a German name, you're going to be in trouble. Luther. Yeah, well, Luther is somewhat of an exception, but from him it all goes, it kind of goes south. But anyway, the idea here would be messianic prophecy is merely a dogmatic assertion. In other words, it doesn't really exist. The idea of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is merely a dogmatic assertion by Christians. Now, that would be news to Jesus. Because remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Bob just talked about this not too long ago. Remember, the disciples are all distraught. And Jesus in his resurrected body has to say, hey guys, I'm paraphrasing, but what's the problem? And then he ends up explaining about himself in Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Jesus' claim is that the Old Testament is about himself. So here's the choice we have. We can either go with J.G. Eichhorn or go with Jesus. I'm going with Jesus because he was raised from the dead. (laughs) Okay, so that's an easy one. We can jettison that approach. The second approach is something that's near and dear to many evangelicals. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this message. It's called census plenior*. It literally means the fuller meaning. And the idea here would be that the Old Testament writer wrote better than they knew. They were writing prophecy and they were predicting things, but they had no idea what they were saying. And so the Old Testament context then would be radically divorced from the New Testament context. And so in this understanding, the New Testament writer could just do New things with the scripture. Be creative with the Old Testament scriptures. But if that's true, then is the Old Testament really messianic? Or are we still just reading it into the text? Are we no then different than J.G. Eichhorn? You see the rub? All right. Now, I want to show you that the Old Testament writers didn't just write better than they knew. But again, they knew what they were saying. And they were teaching messianic doctrine. Turn your Bibles, first of all, to the book of Acts. I'm going to show you a contention that Peter, the apostle himself, made. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's just look at verse 29. Acts 2.29. As you're turning, I'll get a drink. Yep, I'm sorry, 2.29. Now, this is right after Peter at his sermon at Pentecost, has just quoted from Psalm 16.10 that the Holy One would not see decay. Now, remember who wrote that? David did. So, listen to what Peter contends. This is Acts 2.29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay? So, in other words, what Peter's saying is, hey, David's in the tomb rotting it up. It can't apply to him that the Holy One would not see decay. He's decaying. He goes on to say, Being therefore a prophet, here's Arnavi in the Hebrew, right? One who bubbles up and speaks for God. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with him. Now notice the language. And knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would seat one of his seed, his descendants, upon his throne. Notice the contention, verse 31. He foresaw... And spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So notice Peter is saying, no, it wasn't just that David was writing better than he knew when he had given a Psalm 1610, but rather David was a prophet. And he knew exactly what he's saying. In fact, he was building his prophecy on the idea that he knew that there had to be a descendant that would come from his lineage. Again, 2 Samuel 7. Okay so you see it's not just a predictive prophecy it is that but it's also a messianic doctrine let me show you another example of this turn your bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 1 Peter 1:10 Now here Peter again is ironically speaking or writing just as he was at Pentecost Peter says concerning our salvation in the gospel, 1 Peter 1.10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, notice, searched and inquired carefully. So let's stop there. They're not just writing haphazardly. They were searching and inquiring. In other words, they're cognitively engaged in these predictions. Inquiring, verse 11 What person or time the Spirit of Christ, there's the Holy Spirit, in them was indicating when He, that's the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, Peter's contention there also is that the prophets weren't just writing better than they knew, but they were teaching messianic doctrine cognitively engaged. Now, isn't it interesting? Peter finally gets it right there. Peter abandoned Christ because he thought it was all glory all the time. But notice in there, he says, there were sufferings first, and then the glories were to follow. After Pentecost, Peter gets his doctrine down. The sufferings had to come, right? So, I think that that blows census plenier out of the way. The idea that these Old Testament writers were writing better than they knew, and that there's this fuller meaning. Now, there's a third option, and this has become popular in the seminaries today. And that is to claim that the New Testament writers are using a Jewish hermeneutic. I'll just leave it at that. The definition would be the New Testament writers use Christological glasses and use Second Temple hermeneutics. Now, this is just really a fancy way, I think, of saying census plenier. The idea would be in Second Temple hermeneutics, if you look at what Jews would often do with the Old Testament text, is they would say this in the Old Testament or that in the Old Testament is now this. And they would just reapply it. And so some scholars in our seminaries are saying that's what the New Testament writers did. Well, if that's true, then again, we have to ask the question, is the Old Testament messianic? Now, let me throw this out at you. If that's true and the Old Testament really isn't messianic, why does the Apostle Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, he says, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings, that is the scriptures, from your youth, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what sacred writings is he referring to in Second Timothy three fifteen? He's talking about the Old Testament. He doesn't have the Gideon New Testament with him yet, does he? That's put on your lampstand in the hotel or motel. Right? He has the Old Testament. So Paul's saying, Hey, the Old Testament was able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. Well, if the Old Testament isn't really messianic, how could it do that? And, of course, it is really messianic. And so that leaves us... By the way, these categories are Walter Kaiser, so don't blame me for the epigenetical. That's a mouthful, I realize. Uh, This is the one I think is the best idea. The definition is that they're seminal ideas that are placed within specific prophecies. Now, let me explain that. We saw an example of that this morning in Amos 9. Amos 9, when the promise is to rebuild the fallen booth of David... That predictive promise is based in the seminal idea that was placed in 2 Samuel 7, that David's son would one day have a kingdom forever, a dynasty forever, and a seed, namely the Messiah himself, forever. Okay, so you see, Amos wasn't just writing in the blind. He was building his prediction off of what was already known. And all of the promises in your Old Testament all stem back from the very first promise, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, which states that one day the seed of the woman, Zerah, is going to crush the serpent. And in a sense, the rest is details. The seed is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. And so the Old Testament prophets then are wrestling with how will this come about, and they're teaching and they're predicting how it will. That's what they're doing. And so, yes, the Old Testament really is all about Jesus. Let me show you an example of this. I'll show you a case study I think illustrates this point. Let's use Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1, here God, is talking about redeeming Israel from Egypt. Hosea 11.1, he says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, here's the rub. Notice how Matthew uses it. Matthew 2.14-15. Now, granted... Egypt is in the picture here, but as you will see, when this is cited, out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus is going into Egypt, not out of it. Okay, so let's read it. Matthew 2, 14 through 15. It says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But notice in Hosea 11.1, 1, Israel was called out of Egypt, but here Jesus is actually bring, brought into Egypt. And so these seminary professors like this Peter Enns raise objections. Peter Enns in his book Inspiration and Incarnation say, quote, It is difficult indeed to view Jesus coming out of Egypt in Matthew 2.15 as an objective reading of Hosea 11.1. 1. So what's Peter Enns saying? Peter ends as saying that what clearly Matthew is doing is he's using Jewish hermeneutics to simply say that in the Old Testament is this now. And he's just simply making it fit for his own purposes. And so if that's true, and that's what's being taught in many seminary classrooms around the, the, the United States today, if that's true, then the Old Testament isn't messianic. You and I are simply reading it into it after the fact. But here's what I want you to see. I don't think Peter Ends understands the passage in the point. And here's why. Notice in Hosea 11.1, the focus is really on my son. And so what Hosea and Matthew both have in common is the focus on the son. Now, let me show you in pictorial form what this looks like. What you'll find in Old Testament prophecy as it is used in the New Testament is that there is going to be a core idea that is common to both the Old Testament and the New. Okay, so think about the Old Testament. Hosea 11, 1, Israel coming out of Egypt. If Israel doesn't come out of Egypt, what do you lose? You lose the Son. Because Jesus is coming from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is Israel, Judah, and David. So if Israel dies and perishes, remember Pharaoh was trying to wipe out all of the male children. If Israel is wiped out in Egypt, no more seed promise, no more promise of the Messiah. OK, now let's go to Matthew's Day. Herod is running rampant. Herod is killing babies in Bethlehem. And so Jesus goes into Egypt to survive. But what if Herod was successful, what do you lose? The messianic promise. Do you see? That's the relationship between Hosea's day. If Egypt or I'm sorry, if Israel dies in Egypt, you lose the Messiah. If Jesus dies to Herod, you've lost the Messiah. And so what's in common is the protection of my son. That's the referent that is in both contexts. God is faithful in the Old Testament to protect his son. And he is faithful in the new by bringing Jesus into Egypt to protect the son. And it all builds off of Genesis 3.15. Again, the very first promise. This is what God said to Satan. I'll be talking about this today, by the way, in our sermon. The very first gospel, God says to Satan, I will put enmity, that's warfare, between you and the woman and between your seed, Zerah, and her seed. Now, notice, the seed is one in the many. So what do we say? Is it many or is it one? Well, we know it's one because of the third person masculine singular pronoun. He shall bruise you, Satan, on the head. That's a critical, devastating wound. And you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. Just a superficial wound. So if you were in prison and all you had was Genesis 3.15, that's the only Bible you had, you would know one day a man's going to come and crush Satan. And then the rest of it's details. And so if Israel dies in Egypt, the son is that promise for he... Oops, the promise for this He coming is done. If Israel dies here, the He won't come. But if Jesus dies because of Herod, the He who was on the scene is done. And so, what's in common is my son. And so, you see, Peter ends as mistaken when he says, "Ah, Matthew's just taking this text willy-nilly, making things up as it were." No. It's more profound than that. And by the way, that's why, turn your Bibles real quickly to Matthew. I'm going to show you something that Matthew deliberately does. Notice here, turn to Matthew 2.13. Matthew 2.13. What I'm going to show you is Matthew could have certainly cited this passage, the Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, Later in his narrative. When Jesus is actually coming out of Egypt. Notice in 2.13 through 15. I won't read it. But that's where Jesus is going into Egypt. Does everyone see that in 2.13 through 15? Now skip down. To 2.19. But when Herod died it says. Behold an angel of the Lord appeared to. In a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying. Rise take the child and his mother. And go to the land of Israel. Okay for those who sought the child's life are dead. Notice. Matthew doesn't quote, out of Egypt, I called my son there, and he could have. His intent isn't whether he's going into Egypt or out of Egypt. The idea is the protection of the son. That's the common theme that you see between the Old and the New Testament. So I think that that helps us and is instructive as to how the New Testament writers understood Old, Old Testament prophecy. Now, in saying that, let me lay out three different types of prophecies for you. I think this will help you when you're interpreting how the New Testament writers are understanding Old Testament prophecy. First of all, you have just direct prophecies. Now, these are just very straightforward, this is that. Okay, it's just very straight. Micah 5.2 is a good example of that. Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. I'm just showing there the, all the other scriptural references, I think, are references to olam, eternity, meaning eternity, not just a definite length of time. So here's the point. This is just a direct prophecy. From Judah, from particularly Bethlehem, comes the Messiah. And sure enough, Jesus comes from where? From Bethlehem. The bread of life is born in Bethlehem. Beth is house, Lechem is bread. He's the, the bread of life is born in the house of bread. Isn't that Beautiful. And he's buried in the ground during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so that's just a direct prophecy, and there's many of those in the Scriptures. Those are very easy. Now, this is the type that typically give us trouble. We just looked at that in the Matthew case. These are typical prophecies where there's a contextual referent, differs, yes, between the near and the far, but they share at least one common trait. What was the common trait between Hosea 11.1 and Matthew 2.15? The protection of the sun. Okay, that's what they had in common. And so that's what you're looking for. When you're interpreting a typical prophecy, what you're asking yourself as the interpreter is what's the common theme between the Old Testament day and what God did and what he did in the New Testament. That's what you're looking for. And that'll help you really, I think, stay on the straight and narrow when it comes to typical prophecies. Okay, now the third category is the usage of Old Testament terms. The language of the Old Testament is used, but no specific prediction was intended by the Old Testament or New Testament writer. A good example of this, well, first of all, let me just, before I put that up, Matthew 2.23, remember Jesus comes from Nazareth so that it would be called, it would fulfill the scriptures and he would be called a Nazarene. What scripture was it that predicted that Jesus would be a Nazarene? Well, there's none specific, but notice Matthew says not just that it, would be fulfill, that it would fulfill the prophet, singular. But he says, so that it would fulfill the prophets, plural. So Matthew doesn't just have one passage in mind, but he has the totality of what the Old Testament was teaching. And so the promise was that he's claiming that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting is the root for Nazareth is netzer, which means branch. And how many times in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 11, do you see this idea of a branch? The branch from David. And so I think what Matthew is simply doing is he's applying an Old Testament word. The Messiah would be a brancher. And so he comes from Branchville. And so thus it fulfills the prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah, plural, that talked about the Messiah being the branch. Okay, so that's not a specific prediction, but it's an application of Old Testament words. Here's another one that we're going to see in our studies in Revelation. Revelation 6.8, this is the fourth seal, by the way, judgment. I looked and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and the pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, notice the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. All of those were used as God's wrath in Ezekiel 14.21. And so I think the idea here is it's not a direct prediction in Ezekiel 14.21, but now you have God's wrath being poured out not just on Judah, but instead now it's the whole world. And so that's our connection between the near and the far. All right? So that would be the application of Old Testament words. Now, I'm almost done. I might make it through all 17 slides. This would be miraculous. Jot this down. The principles to use. Let me give you some principles to think about and consider as you're interpreting the Old Testament prophecy and specifically how the New Testament writers used the Old Testament prophecy. Number one, read both Old and New Testament passages. Now, I know that sounds like duh, but so many times when we're reading our New Testament, we'll read the New Testament citation of a passage And we really don't have an idea of what the original context was. So when you're doing your studies at home, read the New Testament citation of the passage and then go read the Old Testament referent. And read, if you don't understand from reading just a few verses, for instance, in Hosea 11, if you don't understand God's point in Hosea just by reading Hosea 11.1, read a chapter before a chapter after. And if you still don't understand, you know, keep broadening it out until you get it. And if you still don't understand... Look at a good commentary, and maybe many, okay? But try to understand the the relative uh, context of the Old Testament as well. So the meaning, here's my claim, the meaning of the Old Testament passage must reflect the author's own time and historical circumstances. Now, the reason we should be zealous for that is because you and I are those who proclaim that the Holy Spirit ushered these men along to speak. So if you understand the point of the author, you're understanding the point of the Holy Spirit. So what we're simply doing is saying, yes, we have to understand the Old Testament as it was inspired. To do anything less is us being in control of the meaning rather than the Holy Spirit. Second, the meaning must agree with the grammar and syntax both in the Old and New Testament passages. Let's not play games. Let's just really understand what the author has said. All right? Now, here's another thing we ask. What identical theological theme is embedded in both texts, the near and the far? What I want to do is give you an example of this. What my claim is, is there must be a single meaning to the original Old Testament text. Remember the seed promise, corporate solidarity. Let me give you an example. What theme is common in common here? Let's do Matthew 1, 21 through 23. We're going to look for the common theme between Matthew's day and Isaiah's day. Matthew 1, 21 through 23, here's the prophecy. Matthew says, She will bear a son, and, and this is the remember the angel speaking, and you shall call his name Jesus he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. All right? Now, what we're going to look for is what did he say in Isaiah 7.14? So here's the promise to Ahaz. Okay? They're under jeopardy of being wiped out. So God gives a promise. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she, shall, she will call his name Emmanuel. Again, God with us. Okay, so what we're going to do is look at the near and the far. And again, what we're claiming is that God is teaching the same thing, that the Messiah is coming from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Revelation 20.22. 20, and so what we find out then is the connection between the near and the far is this. In Isaiah's day, what's the problem? The problem is Syria and Samaria threaten the Davidic line. If Samaria crushes Judah, no more seed promise from Genesis 3.15. But the promise that this Davidic lineage will continue in the short term is that there's going to be a son that will be born to Ahaz. And that's a sign that God is with us, Emmanuel. And sure enough, he has this son that is born in the next chapters. What's his name? Mashar, Mashal, Shashbaz, or whatever. (laughs) There's a Hebrew name for him. I forget. It's It's a tongue twister. But sure enough, he's born. And he's born at the time to a woman who I believe was a virgin. Now, it wasn't miraculous. She later conceives. But at the time, he's saying to Ahaz, this virgin is going to have a child. And when this child comes from you, a son of David, you're going to know that God will not give up the Davidic promise, God is with us, Emmanuel. Okay, now in the New Testament then, what's the threat in Matthew's day? Well, Herod threatens the Davidic line. He could wipe out the the Messiah that's first promised in Genesis 3.15. But the promise comes to fruition because Jesus is actually born and therefore, what do we know? Emmanuel, God is with us. He brought about the Messiah. And so that's the connection between the the near and the Old Testament and the far in the new, that God was faithful to bring the Messiah. In this case, even through a virgin, literally, a virgin birth. Okay, does that make sense? You're always looking for what's the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so that's how we should understand Old Testament prophecy. What do we gain by that? You and I aren't playing games. We're simply understanding the Old Testament as it was inspired and the New and it's much more grand than we know. And you and I then can boldly proclaim that, yes, the Old Testament from the law, the prophets, and the writings really are all about Jesus, just as he said. We're not playing games. It really is that grand and that good. Okay, so with that, I'm sorry I went the whole time, but I think I made it through 17 slides. That's a miraculous thing in of itself. <laughs> um, Feel free if you have any comments, questions. We'll talk about it as we fellowship during the meal.